So we saw that the parable of the sower was the longest of all the parables Jesus gave, and it was the key to understanding or unlocking the meaning of the rest of the parables. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church, located in St. Johns County, Florida, just south of Jacksonville and a short distance from St. Augustine. The sermons on this podcast are preached weekly at Christ Reformed, and we'd love for you to join us for worship. Let me tell you a little bit about our church. Three words can help describe our church in simple terms. First, we are confessional. We endorse and teach from both the Westminster Standards along with the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Second, we are expositional. Our church's ministry focuses on the expository preaching of God's Word. Currently, I'm preaching through the Gospel of Mark. Third, we are intentional. This church was established in early 2016 with the intention of focusing on the ordinary means of grace. It is the study of God's Word, prayer, and the sacraments that remain our focus as a church. So if you are interested in a confessional Reformed Church plant intentional to focus on the simplicity of ministry, you may want to consider visiting us. Our meeting address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. We are located less than three miles from Interstate 95 and less than two miles from Extension 9B. We are just south of Julington Creek. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, as well as articles and a podcast I host focusing on church history and theology, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com. Now, let's take our Bibles and open them to the Gospel of Mark for our sermon this week. Well, I want you to take your Bibles uh, this morning and be turning to Mark again, Mark chapter 4. And I told you last week that we were going to begin moving a little bit faster, which we did. We looked at the first 20 verses known as uh, the parable of the sower. This morning, we want to begin looking at verses 21 through 34. And um, I'm not convinced we're going to get through all of these verses. Um, In fact, we probably won't. But we'll get a good head start this morning as we continue to look at the parables of our Lord. So... When you find your place in Mark chapter 4, please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word, and I'll pick up in verse 21 and read down through verse 34. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use it, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. This is the authoritative and errant and living Word of God. Please be seated as we ask for the Lord's help. Our Father, as we approach the text this morning, we know that you have ordained this specific text for this specific Lord's Day, for this specific people to hear. And so we pray that you would, even as Jesus says here, give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see the glory of your kingdom, the big picture of your kingdom and the role that we play within it, so that we might bear fruit 
and honor you as citizens of this kingdom. We pray and ask all of this in the blessed name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as I said last time, we looked at the parable of the sower, and I mentioned the fact that the parable of the sower is preferably called the parable of the sower and not the parable of the soils. The soil in the parable of the sower does absolutely nothing, but the sower does a lot. He scatters the seed. He disseminates the seed. So this is the parable of the sower. We saw that at the end of this parable, Jesus explained the meaning to the disciples. Jesus began preaching in parables after he was rejected by his own physical family, as we saw in chapter 3, rejected by the religious leaders who accused him of operating in the power of Satan or Beelzebul. And so he goes to the beach side of the Sea of Galilee, and a very large crowd gathers around and he begins preaching to them in parables. There would come a day in which Jesus would exclusively preach to the crowds in parables as a means of judgment. We saw this last time. Matthew tells us in Matthew 13, all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. That day would come. And even in this passage, Jesus is clear that the giving of the parables, as we saw in verses 10 through 13, was to do two things. Number one, it was to reveal the truth of the kingdom, or what we would call the mystery or the secret of the kingdom, to true disciples. And secondly, it was to conceal the truth from non-disciples, perhaps professing believers that were not possessing Christ, perhaps those part of the visible church but not part of the invisible church, that is, the non-elect. So Jesus only gave the interpretation of the parable of the sower to the disciples as we saw in verses 14 through 20. And we saw here that Jesus was clear that God is the sower of the seed. The seed is the word of God, specifically the gospel. God sovereignly casts the seed of the word, and there are four types of heart soil that receive it. We refer to the hard soil as the stoic heart soil. That's the heart soil that was apathetic to the word. The word of God was preached. It went one in went in one ear and out the other. Apathetic, stoic, hard. The second type of soil was the spontaneous heart soil. That's the type of heart that hears the word of God. They um, immediately receive it with joy, but when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, they fall away. There's no root in and of themselves. They're spontaneous. They're happy and joyous at first at hearing this, but they kind of believe in a superficial, spontaneous way, and once the newness wears off, they move on to something else. There's people in the visible church like that everywhere. Just look around. The third type of heart soil was the superficial heart soil. Those are the ones who are sown. But the cares of this world, when the Word of God is sown, the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, as verse 19 says, the desire for other things enter in and choke the Word, and it proves unfruitful. So the first three types of heart soil really bear no fruit. They are representative of unbelievers. Stoic heart soil, spontaneous heart soil, superficial heart soil. The only type of heart soil that bore fruit was the soft heart soil. That is mentioned in verse 20. Those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. So we saw that the parable of the sower was the longest of all the parables Jesus gave, and it was the key to understanding or unlocking the meaning of the rest of the parables. Verse 13, he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? You miss the meaning of this parable. You miss the meaning of all the parables that Jesus taught. And what is the point of this parable? And what is the point of all the parables? It's simply this, that there will be great fruitfulness in the kingdom of God. The parables are all about the kingdom of God. Verse 11, he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. Verse 26, the kingdom of God as as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. Verse 30, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? The parables are about the kingdom of God. Now the parable of the sower may appear by some to be pessimistic. 
There are those who interpret it that way. They say something like this, well, three out of the four types of heart soil didn't receive the Word of God. So when you look at the expansion of the Gospel and His kingdom in the world, you need to have a pessimistic sort of eschatology. The glass is always half full. But I think the exact opposite is the case because the parable ends on a high note. It ends with unbelievable, incalculable fruit, 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold fruit, which never happened. That was the type of thing that was impossible in the world of farming. This is a supernatural, spiritual thing that is occurring to say this, that in spite of all the types of heart soil that don't receive the Word, there are types of heart soil that do receive the Word, and it is an abundant harvest when you look at it from the big picture. This is not a pessimistic parable. It is an optimistic parable. And all the parables that follow elucidate the optimism of the expansion of the kingdom of God, the power of the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it is a process. The presence of the kingdom does not come with the harvest happening at the beginning. It is a process. This is not the parable of the harvest. It's the parable of the sowing of the seed. It's a parable to tell us there is the scattering of the seed, there is the work of disseminating the gospel, and the Spirit of God will operate according to His own timetable. But in the end, there will be a harvest, the likes of which no farmer has ever seen. Because this is a supernatural farmer, God is the sower. The harvest is the final prospect. It's not the immediate result of the beginning of the kingdom of God. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 39, the harvest is the end of the age. The end of the age. So when you take a macro level view of God's kingdom, you see that at the end of the age, when all is said and done, this kingdom will be so large, it will be, as Jesus says, like a tree that fills a garden and everyone can find shade underneath it. But this message of the kingdom will be difficult for some to understand. Jesus said that in verse 11, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, the mystery of the kingdom of God, the mysterion. Jesus is borrowing that world from the pagan mystery religions. They existed from the 7th century BC all the way to the 4th AD, where people were involving themselves in secret rites of passage teaching ceremonies that pervaded the landscape of ancient Rome among members of the pagan cults. And what they would do is they would undergo some sort of initiation, at which point a line was drawn, those who were in, those who were out. The mystery of the rites was given to those who were willing to take them. And by participating in these mystical rites, it provided for them a sanctifying union between the deity and the devotees of that deity. So that a vow of silence was made by the devotees so that the information of the rites and the ceremonies and the teachings remained secret. They remained a mystery. They were not to leave the grounds of the temple for those who were initiated into it. Jesus is borrowing that phrase, musterion, or secret, to say that the kingdom of God has a secret, but it is not a secret that is to remain a secret. It is given to those who seek it. It is given to those who seek it, who are the disciples here. And Paul would use it that way as well. If you go with me to Ephesians chapter 3, you'll see Paul's usage of the mystery. He describes it in some detail here, and we'll just glance at it. But he says in uh, verse 3 that there was a mystery made known to him by revelation. He says, when you read it, you can perceive my insight into the mystery, and he calls it the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. What is that mystery? This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And Paul says, of this gospel, I was made a minister. And my job is to reveal the unsearchable riches of Christ, verse 8, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So with the new covenant, 
with the resurrection of Christ, with the ascension of Christ, with the pouring out of the Spirit, with the calling of the Apostle Paul, is revealed this mystery. What is the mystery? It's that in God's great big world, He's not going to just save ethnic Jews. He's going to save Gentiles. So that there is going to be a massive harvest of Jews and Gentiles who find their identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. The complete number of Gentiles will be brought in into this one body, the body of Christ, Romans 11.25, and Christ will indwell through the Spirit both Jews and Gentiles united in one body called the New Testament church. That is the mystery. The mystery that has been revealed. A mystery in the New Testament is one that has been hidden but is now being revealed. Revealed to those chosen by God. Not revealed to those who have hardened their hearts like Pharaoh. Those that harden their hearts to this mystery of the gospel and what God is doing in the world, God will then harden their hearts in a form of judgment. We saw that last time. In his book entitled, The Coming of the Kingdom of God, Herman Ritterboss, I think, remarks on this, and I sort of came across this on accident last night as I was reading to go to sleep, but it really encapsulates the essence of this parable. Speaking about the parable of the sower, Ritterboss says, the parable does not only shed light on the obstructions of the kingdom of God, but it speaks of the seed falling along the road on the rocks amid the thorns and remains fruitless. But also it speaks of a seed falling on good earth, giving fruit according to the law of a great and wonderful multiplication. It has been said that after the elaborate threefold description of the loss of the seed, the good field more or less seems to be an exception. The picture of three-fourths of the seed being lost means the usual result of the Word of God is not the result. But Ritterboss says this interpretation is far-fetched. The parable does not say that three-fourths of the seed remains without fruit. No proportions are given. By the side of the many possibilities of no crop or a bad crop, we find the wonderful 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. It may be, says Ritterboss, true that the preaching of the gospel is often fruitless, but the parable of the sower is not pessimistic. It points to the wonderful germinal force of the seed together with the failures. In the parable, Jesus certainly does not want to draw our attention exclusively to the kingdom threatened and handicapped by all kinds of powers. He also points out its miraculous operations and fruits. And I think that Ritterboss is correct. Because in the parables that follow, which are shorter and pithier, Jesus elaborates on the parable of the sower. And these are all very optimistic principles that Jesus lays down. Again, parables are comparison. The Greek word for parable is parabole, from two Greek words, para, which means alongside, and balo, which means to throw. It's throwing down a comparison alongside something else, in form of a metaphor, or a simile, or a picture, or an illustration. Someone has said that parables are like stained glass windows on a church building, sometimes unclear and blurry on the outside, but once you go on the inside of the church, you see the clarity and the radiance and the color of what the picture is. So in these wisdom sayings, these parables that Jesus now gives in verses 21 and following, these are things that He said throughout the course of his ministry. And some people believe that Mark, because he's always quick to get to his point, has gone over the history of Jesus' theology, and he's compiled all these various sayings of Jesus and put them here, even though at this point in the chronology, Jesus didn't say all of them at one time by the sea. That may be true. We really don't know what the chronology is. Perhaps uh, Jesus gave the parable of the sower, the crowds went away, Jesus explained the parable of the sower to the disciples, and another great crowd came and he gave the rest of these parables. We don't know because these things are scattered in Matthew and Luke, and Jesus uses different applications of these parables. But one thing we do know is that here in this context, what Mark wants us to understand is that there were times, or there was at least one time, in which Jesus used these parables to speak about one thing, and that was the expansion and the optimism of the kingdom of God. The fact that God's kingdom will bear fruit. That's how verse 20 ended. It ended, the story did, not on a bad note, but a good note. There is going to be massive fruit. And the types of hearts that receive the Word of God are going to bear massive fruit. 
Because God has tilled their hearts. God has cultivated the soil. The sovereign sower of the Word has done the hard work of chopping up the rocky hearts of men and women of His elect people so the Word of God is planted. And when it is planted, God is not a failure as a farmer. The crop will be huge, magnificent. The proportions, expansive. So whether this is a different occasion or not matters not because the next parables logically flow from the first big parable illustrating what kingdom fruitfulness looks like. So in these verses, verses 21 through 34, we simply see four fruit-bearing activities of true citizens of Christ's kingdom. Four fruit-bearing activities of the true citizens of Christ's kingdom. Who are the citizens of the kingdom? They are, verse 20, the ones who receive the seed of the word of God because they have soft hearts, they're regenerate, and they begin to bear fruit. What does that fruit look like in a citizen of the kingdom of God? What does God's kingdom look like in general from a fruit standpoint? Four fruit-bearing activities. Number one, we see in verses 21 and 22, that true citizens of Christ's kingdom will be absorbed in the proclamation of the message of the kingdom. Secondly, in verses 23 through 25, pondering about the meaning of the kingdom. Then in verses 26 through 29, preoccupation with the ministry of the kingdom. Then in verses 30 through 34, patience in the manifestation of the kingdom. This is the fruitfulness of the kingdom of God. It produces proclamation and pondering and preoccupations, patient and patience. It involves a message, the pondering of the meaning of the kingdom. It involves ministry. It involves the patience that we have and seeing the kingdom of God fully manifested in the world. This is the fruit of the kingdom of God. This is the fruit of individual believers. This is the fruit of the church. This is the fruit of true Christians. They understand the implications and applications of the glory of the kingdom of God. And we're just going to begin looking at these verses this morning. Four fruit-bearing activities of true citizens of Christ's kingdom. Number one, notice with me in verses 21 and 22 that true citizens of Christ's kingdom will be absorbed in proclamation of the message of the kingdom. Proclamation of the message of the kingdom. And let me just say, before we even look at these verses, that this is the most important aspect of kingdom fruit-bearing. Citizens of God's kingdom are to mimic God who is the sower of the Word. We are instruments who disseminate the seed of the Word. The mystery of the kingdom, listen to this, is not to be kept to ourselves, it is to be told to the world. And Jesus picks up a different image to explain that beginning in verse 21. He says, and He said to them, is a lamp brought into a house to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? Remember that soft heart soil bears fruit. But now Jesus is changing the imagery to say that fruitful hearts become like shining lamps before a watching world. To preach the gospel, to disseminate the truth for the benefit of others, for the glory of God. Sure, it's true. Some of that seed is scattered and it doesn't take. But Isaiah 55 is clear, God's word will not return to him void. He is glorified even when his gospel is rejected. We don't shine in and of ourselves, but we bear the glow of Christ because he indwells us. So notice the question again, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? Jesus is saying, do you, do you bring a light into a dark house to then hide it under a basket or a bed? Well, of course you don't. So... God's gospel, the message of His kingdom, must not be hidden. It must shine brightly to be a blessing to the world. Who would light a lamp and then put it under a basket or under a bed? Now, all the homes in Jesus' day had lamps, or lupnos is the Greek word. A lamp was a terracotta, saucer-shaped clay vessel that was enclosed. It usually had a hole in the middle or maybe a spout on the rim where a wick was placed, a handle on one end to carry And then you would use that lamp, that lupnos, to place on the stand or the lampstand, the lupnia, which was probably a pillar that held up a little Middle Eastern home, a pillar that attached to a crossbeam across the flat roof of a Middle Eastern home to light up the entire room. 
The bed would have been self-explanatory where someone sleeps. A basket was a modias, that was a bowl uh, to measure things, a common container holding up to two gallons. Now you can't see it in the English, but in the Greek there is a definite article before the word lamp. And I'll point that out to you because it's critical. This is not just any lamp that Jesus is speaking about. Literally in the Greek it reads that is the lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed? The lamp. I agree with R.C. Sproul that the lamp is representative of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He was the light that came into the world, which launched the breakthrough of the kingdom of God. And so Jesus essentially is saying here in verse 21, I am coming into the world to shine as a bright light along with my kingdom. Perhaps by way of illustration, many of you do watch sports and you're familiar with the NCAA basketball tournament. Every year, an annual tournament to crown the national champion for college basketball, a wonderful event. Those players that play in that event, it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And when they come to the end of that event and they give the trophy to the championship team for many, 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 many years now, they will play a theme song and the theme song is entitled One Shining Moment. And they show images of these players playing in these games in the tournament, speaking about the fact that it is their one shining moment. Well, Jesus is saying, my shining moment has come. My kingdom has broken through. And I want my light to shine broadly. Now, while it's true every Jewish home had a lamp and a lampstand, perhaps Jesus has in mind not man's homes, but God's home. Because after all, the tabernacle had a lampstand. You read about this in Exodus 25. Seven lamps are set up to give light in the tabernacle. We know from John 1.14 that Jesus came into the world and He dwelt among us. He tabernacled among, among us. His light invaded Satan's darkness. We also know following biblical typology that 2 Samuel 22.29 David says to God, You are my lamp, O Lord. My God lightens my darkness. In Psalm 132 and verse 17, the psalmist says, I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed, referring to the Messiah who is the son of David. You're familiar with Psalm 119, 105. The word of God or the law of God is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. All of this is tied together with the Word of God, the Gospel of God, the incarnate Word of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world, who came into the world to shine. He wasn't meant to be put under a bed or under a basket. He was meant that His glow might go to the extremes of the earth, to the north and the south and the east and the west, to Jew and to Gentile. And notice in verse 21, is a lamp... Brought in. That word brought is erkamai. Interestingly, it is the same Greek word that is used to describe Jesus coming in Mark 1, verse 7. Jesus preached, saying, After me, or I'm sorry, this is John preaching, saying, After me comes erkamai. After me comes erkamai, one who is mightier than I. Jesus says, Is a lamp coming into the world? To be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? There is a form of biblical typology that we would do well to pay attention to. And one way to explain this is by a movie that my kids watched when they were really little, especially my older kids, entitled Toy Story. There are several of these movies. They're cute little movies, some of my favorite movies, in which these toys, these inanimate objects... When the children turn their backs, all of a sudden these toys become animate objects with personality and feeling. Jesus is saying, I am the lamp represented throughout Scripture. I am the lamp who has come into the world. 2 Kings 8.19 Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David his servant since he promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. Who is that lamp? That's the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you know this typology is biblical? Because Jesus said it. We don't want to disagree with Jesus. He is the lamp whose bright light of salvation brings hope to a dying world. He is to be put on the lampstand where he belongs. 
He is to be placed up high. He is supreme above all things. Jesus Christ is the head of the church, and Jesus Christ is the king of the world. He resurrected and He ascended to sit on the throne of heaven. And this lamp represents His light, His desires, His purposes, His plans, His salvation to be made known. So Jesus says, no one is going to light a lamp, bring it into a dark house, put it under a basket, and put it under a bed and not on a stand. The reason he said that is because the disciples might be wondering, are we to keep this mystery in secret to ourselves? Because after all, Jesus said, back in verse 11, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but to those outside, everything is in parables. So that they may indeed see, Isaiah 6, but not perceive. They may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. So the disciples are saying, now wait a second, you want us to keep this to ourselves? And Jesus says, no, no, you misunderstand this. My job is to conceal. Your job is to reveal. I am sovereign. I choose who my elect people are. You don't know who they are. You don't choose them. You disseminate the light everywhere. And you trust that the Spirit of God will direct His elect to the light. God's job is to conceal the light of the gospel from those whose hearts are hardened in sin. Our job is to reveal the light of the gospel to all. And Jesus makes that explicit in verse 22. Notice your Bibles. Jesus goes on to say, for, and that Greek word gar means this is a continuation of what he was just saying in verse 21. For, let let me explain to you what I mean, disciples. Nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. Similar concept is taught in Matthew 10.26 where it was used to incite boldness, to witness in the face of persecution. Jesus said, Have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. So he uses that parable in that context and applies it differently. Or uh, or Luke chapter 12 is is another place that Jesus uses this, this little parable, this little metaphor, Luke 12 um, He says that uh, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. And then he says, Therefore, whatever you have said in dark will be heard in the light. Whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. That was a warning to not live as a hypocrite because hypocrites are always what? Hypocrites are always revealed. They're always revealed. Same concept, same parable. It's permissible to give it many applications, but in this context, it's biblically permissible to compare what he's saying to the kingdom of God. Verse 22 forms a couplet of synonymous parallelism. So there are two phrases that are saying the same thing, but they're using synonyms to reinforce what Jesus is saying. Apokrupfos is a synonym for kruptos. So nothing is hidden that won't be made manifest. Nothing is secret except that which will come to light. There is something that is hidden, but that will be revealed. That is the gospel. Nothing is hidden except to be made manifest. God does not want His gospel hidden to the elect. Nothing is to remain secret. It's to come to light. The mystery of the kingdom of God. So when we go to West Virginia on our annual trip, one of the games that our kids love to play that I am sucked into is a game called Treasure Hunt in which the adults will hide things with the express purpose not so that they will never be found, but so that they will be found. And maybe a crass illustration, but God is like the organizer of a treasure hunt. He hides things with the express purpose of the ones He sovereignly chooses to find the treasure. And the treasure is the gospel. We don't know who He wants to find it. So we disseminate the light of truth to everyone. We let the secret of the kingdom out. And He will sovereignly direct who He wills to discover the mystery of the kingdom. So the bright light of the gospel is the message that the world needs to see and hear. Christ's kingdom will not be fully realized until the consummation. But until then, we shout the gospel from the rooftops. As soft heart soil, God's true believers, here's the point, is to bear the fruit of evangelism. The fruit of evangelism. 
That is the mission of the church. And Paul would speak about that as a great harvest. For example, he says in Romans 1, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the Gentiles. A gospel harvest. Paul was always focused on a gospel harvest. Souls being saved. I mentioned this passage last week, Colossians chapter 1. In verse 3, we always thank God, the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. That's the seed of the word. Listen to this. Which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Paul says the gospel is bearing fruit in the world. It's going to the Gentiles. It's expanding in a way it never did in the Old Testament. And not only that, but the fruit of the kingdom is seen in your heart and in your life. You're no longer a pagan. You no longer worship at the temple. You no longer involve yourself with orgies and drunkenness. You have been changed. You heard the word of God. Your, your, your heart soil was soft. You received the implanted word. It produced the fruit of the Spirit. It produced a changed life. Adam and Eve hid in the darkness after the great sin. Remember that? Thinking that their dirty deed could be covered and God exposed them. Genesis 3 says they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And God held Adam to account. Where are you, Adam? And what he basically set before Adam was the law of God. Did you eat of the tree I told you not to eat of? To expose a sin. The light of the law exposed to sin. That led to salvation. Adam was clothed with the furs of an animal to convey the righteousness of God, the forgiveness of God. Man does not come to the light, John says, for fear that what? His evil deeds will be exposed. But the church is to be a beacon in this dark world. And someday when the fullness of God's kingdom is here, all sinners will be exposed. That's what Jesus is saying. The bright light of the gospel is so bright that collectively when you put all the lights together throughout the history of the church, when you get to the end of this thing, it's going to be so bright that no sinner can hide. Everyone will be held accountable before God. The gospel will prevail. This will be the final kingdom, the full manifestation of of God's nature and of His kingdom at the last day will be so bright there will be no hiding from the light of Christ and His truth. And remember, in Jesus' own day, there was great darkness. Darkness in the Pharisees' traditions that hid the true gospel. Right? Jesus said in Matthew 15, 3, Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? You're hiding God's Word by your tradition. He even said this, In Matthew 23, this was very harsh, but Jesus said in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. No, instead, you're hypocrites. You travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. You're in darkness, you're going to hell. Your blind guides leading the blind because you have suppressed the light of truth under your traditions. The Word of God, the true gospel, is hidden and covered up. You've shut the door of the kingdom to Israel. You've shut it. You're not opening it. There is no light. People are in darkness. People are in bondage. And God's judgment has come upon you. Hypocritical living... Standing on the street corners, Jesus would say, so that they might be heard for their many prayers. Matthew 6, this was in the Sermon on the Mount. Or fasting, looking gloomy like the hypocrites, disfiguring their faces to be seen by others. Jesus says this is hypocrisy. This is traditionalism. This is not allowing the light to burst forth. This is aiding and abetting darkness. You think I'm working for Satan? You're the one working for Satan. You are of your father, the devil. So he tells his disciples, God's word must not be hidden. God's word must be proclaimed. You're familiar with it. 
You are the light of the world, Jesus said in Matthew 5. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, Jesus says, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We shine the brightest as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ when we not only preach the true gospel, not the traditions of man, but also when we live according to the law of God. The law of God is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. God's law is a lamp. God's gospel is a lamp. There's no contradiction here. Think about it. We're talking about the kingdom of God. You can't have a kingdom if you don't have a king. And you can't have a true king unless you have laws. And you can't have a true kingdom unless you have subjects to those laws. It all goes together. The law reveals our sin. The good news of the kingdom and the gospel rescues us from that sin. That's why we proclaim both as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says he's delivered us from the domain of darkness. He's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Colossians chapter 1. All throughout scripture, light is a strong metaphor. It's a light for truth. Proverbs 6.23, the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light. It is, um, light is used to describe the expansion of God's kingdom. Paul, Paul did this in Acts chapter 26 and verse uh, 23, I believe it is. He said that Christ must suffer and then being first arise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. This is the expansion of the kingdom, or Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 9, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and true. Light is seen in Scripture as holy living. Light is seen as shining forth the truth of God, the gospel of God, even the law of God through the way that we live our lives. Paul said in Romans 13, The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness, put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality, sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Over and over and over again, the church is referred to as light. We are a chosen race, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us, where? Out of darkness and into where? His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul and keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. No disconnect between the preaching of the gospel and the living out of the light of the law of God so that when the world says ugly things about us, one thing they can't say is that we live immorally because we are the light to the world. Where is this sort of light in the evangelical church today? There's darkness all around. Ecclesiastes 12.4 says that God will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, every evil deed. Ephesians 5, the church is not to partake in wickedness and the evil deeds of darkness, but to expose them. We are to expose the darkness and shine light. It's not good enough to just preach the gospel. We have to live the gospel. This is part of the proclamation of the message of the kingdom. True citizens are absorbed in preaching the gospel, living the gospel, and not only that, but explaining to others what the gospel is not and the sorts of darkness that are threatening the church. Let me give you a list of things in our day that compete with the bright light of God's kingdom. For one, false teachers. False teachers are alive and well in the visible church. We should not be surprised about this, but we should expose these false teachers. Paul was, was very clear about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 
He says that false apostles have come in, deceitful workmen disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. He says no wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. It's no surprise that his servants disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. This is everywhere in our culture today. If you don't say the right thing, you're viewed as a racist. That is seen as as a noble thing. To admit that you're a racist even if you're not a racist. That's seen as, as the right thing to do. Anything else is darkness. It's not light. Um, it's noble to protect the rights of homosexuals. It's a dark thing not to do that. It's what the world says. Why don't you be a, a bright light of hope to the world and accept everyone just as they are? That false teaching has infiltrated the church and if the church doesn't stand against that, they are not exposing the works of darkness. They are participating and they are complicit because they aren't standing up for truth. False teachers, darkness that threatens the church. Here's another one, feminism. Feminism threatens the church. The first sin was rooted in feminism. Eve wanted to subvert not only Adam's headship, but also God's headship. Reverse the order. She wanted to be in charge. Women power, the women's movement has done more damage to our culture than anything else in the last 100 years, and it's done more damage to the church than anything else. When you don't have men leading, according to the Word of God, how can God bless the evangelical church? Feminism is darkness. Stay away from it. False teachers, feminism. already mentioned racism through critical race theory. That's a darkness that needs to be stood against. A feminization of men, men not acting like men. And I'm not talking about being able to, to fix something in your house or to work on a car. I'm talking about true manliness as God describes it, as a man who is a leader, as a man who has conviction, as a man who washes his wife with the water of the word. He raises his children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. He goes to work week in and week out, goes to work week in and week out, working for the Lord, having a testimony, being a true man. False teachers, feminism, racism, the feminization of men, socialism, which is coming to the church that wants to dethrone God. The church is to expose these things. On the one hand, the church is not to participate in these things. We aren't to associate with the world on these things. Paul said that. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? We are the temple of God. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I'll be their God. They will be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing. Touch no unclean thing. So on the one hand, the church is to be such a bright light that they are so separate from the world. There is a distinction. When you walk into this building, there should be a difference from everything else you see in the world. When you walk into this building, you should hear something different than you hear in the world. And this message isn't to stay here as a secret, it's to go out as we go out and preach the gospel. Paul said this in Colossians 4, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, that is unbelievers, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So we aren't to participate and be like the world, but we are to be among the world. Do you see that connection? To boldly say this, you are in sin this morning if you blend in with the world, but you also are in sin this morning if you build a wall from the world. We are ambassadors of Christ. We are to let the secret out. Ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us, we implore others on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. The gospel is to ooze from our lips and from our pores and from our very being. We are to be lamps into the world. We are to be walking Bibles, if you will, so that the gospel changes everything about the way that we think and the way that we live. Changes the way we raise our children, how we treat our spouse, how we work on the job, how we appear in the community. All of those things are affected so that the proclamation of the message of the kingdom has far more with it 
than just standing on a street corner and preaching the gospel. It's how you live your life. It's how you exude that light to a world, collectively the church doing it, having the glow of Christ so that God's kingdom will be expanded so that someday His bright light fills this dark world. That's what Jesus is saying. This is the fruit of the kingdom of God. And I would just ask you this morning, how important is it for you to glow for Christ? I would ask you this morning, do you bear this sort of fruit in your life, in your marriage, at your workplace, in the secret recesses of your heart? Do you desire God to receive full glory above all things? And are you willing to count the cost and sacrifice whatever it takes to sacrifice for the bright light of Christ to shine? Because here is the reality To the degree that we are willing to sacrifice and be inconvenienced for the kingdom of God reveals where our faith is. Jesus did not preach the parable of the harvest. He preached the parable of the sower sowing the seed. It's hard work that comes with great sacrifice and much fruitlessness will be seen by the physical eyes, but will we with spiritual eyes see the bigger work of God in the world? That takes faith that only God can give. But we're talking about four fruit-bearing activities of true citizens of Christ's kingdom. First, we're to be absorbed in the citizens of His kingdom in the proclamation of the message of the kingdom. But secondly, and we'll just kind of look at this one briefly, we're also to be absorbed in pondering about the meaning of the kingdom. If the proclamation of the message of the kingdom is emphasized in verses 21 and 22, then pondering about the meaning of the kingdom is emphasized in verses 23 through 25. And just notice your Bibles how verse 23 states this. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. That's a repeat of verse 9, right? Jesus already said that. Spiritual ears result in spiritual fruit. So if you have ears to hear, hear. And this fruit has to do with acquiring knowledge about the meaning of the kingdom. Jesus is calling them now to think through the significance of what his parables reveal concerning the kingdom. So he says again in verse 24, and he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. Now, it's not just what you hear, but it's how you hear, right? Many go to church Sunday after Sunday. They hear the same thing and leave the same way. It only matters what we hear, but how we hear. Preaching of the Word of God should change us, challenge us, churn thoughts within our souls. And I really think that's the point of these next parables. Simple. Diligence in pondering the meaning of the kingdom results in a reward. Great gain. Negligence in pondering the meaning of the kingdom will result in a loss of what one already has or maybe what one could have had. I think the image of Farming is still on our Lord's mind. So let me put it to you this way. A farmer only gets out of his harvest what he puts into it, right? You don't work hard, you don't eat. This verse has perplexed many, but I think Jesus' point is simple. It's not altogether different from two very famous principles that Paul gave. He said this, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. 2 Corinthians 9.6 He said this, Galatians 6.7 Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that he will also reap. I think Jesus is saying essentially that same thing here. And it's going to require you to think a little bit, but notice the parable in verse 24. He says, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. Now, this is a parable that is used in Matthew chapter 7. If you turn back to Matthew chapter 7, you're familiar with this portion of Scripture. And Jesus uses this in the context of judging. He says in verse 1, judge not that you be not judged. Verse 2, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, 
You don't notice the log that's in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? Hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. What is the point? Jesus uses this parable with the measure you use at verse 2, it will be measured to you to say that in the same way you judge others, you also will be judged. You judge others harshly, they're going to judge you harshly. Listen, this is a principle of life. People that are gracious are typically treated graciously in return. It's true with Christians and non-Christians. It's an axiom. It's a principle. It's a parable. We are to forgive abundantly, not be overly judgmental. God forgives abundantly. Isaiah 55, 7. Micah 7, 18. God delights in loving kindness. So in Matthew 7, it's used, this parable is, the same one he's using in Mark 4 to describe, the way you measure your judgment, it will be measured to you. But turn with me over to Luke chapter 6, because Jesus applied this parable another way. Luke chapter 6, in verse 38, I believe it is. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back. Here, I think in verse 38, it's speaking about giving. Because a robe was used to carry the overflow of grain. And Jesus is saying, if you give financially in a certain way, it will be given back to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. To say this, God does not simply give of His riches. God gives, Ephesians 1, 7, according to the riches of His grace. God is not stingy. He gives grace upon grace. So when we are stingy with our finances and not giving toward the kingdom of God, we are not mimicking God. God so loved the world, He sent His only begotten Son. God has the character of a giving heart. When Solomon asked for wisdom, God not only gave him wisdom, but God gave him what he didn't ask for, and that is riches and honor. Jesus restored life to Jairus' daughter, which was gracious and miraculous, but then he also saw to it that she had something to eat. He wasn't stingy with his giving. Christians aren't to be stingy with their giving. To the measure we measure... And give, it will be measured back to us. We measure a lot of giving and pour it into the church. God will bless us in return. That principle is taught throughout Scripture. And I think those applications of this parable are permissible. and must be taken seriously. But that's not what Mark 4 is about. Turn back to Mark 4. In Mark 4, Jesus is using the same parable to apply it a different way. He's applying it to the kingdom of God. He's saying something like this. Listen. What you put into your understanding of the parables or into the teaching of Scripture in general, in terms of trying to understand what they mean will determine how much you get out of your understanding. Sort of like 2 Timothy 2.15. Study to show thyself approved a workman of God that doesn't need to be ashamed. So that that basket that was mentioned in the last parable... It was used for measuring things. R.C. Sproul says this, and I quote, It's as if Jesus was saying that the same size basket we put over the lamp will be put over us. In other words, if we hide the light of the gospel influence that we have, what influence we have will be lost. And how do you gain gospel influence? You gain gospel influence by understanding the depths of the gospel, by acquiring the knowledge of truth so that you are equipped to explain that gospel to those you come in contact with and have an influence. By the same measure, we size up the implications of the kingdom, what the kingdom is, what our role in the kingdom is, will be to the same measure God uses us. The harder we work to see the full import of God's kingdom and His reign here and now, will determine how brightly we shine. Do we want to be like a matchstick or do we want to be more like a torch? Jesus is saying there is reward for your hard work of understanding the nature of the kingdom. Perhaps this is even an echo of the parable of the talents. In the parable of the talents, what was used resulted in great reward, which what wasn't used was taken away. Obviously, 
To the degree that we study Scripture, the implications of our role in shining forth the light of the gospel in the kingdom determines our present influence and our future reward. Because what is God after? He is after His church, His kingdom filling the whole world. So we must work toward that. Look at verse 31. The kingdom of God is like a grain of mustard seed which was sown on the ground. It is the smallest of all the seeds on earth, yet when it is sown, it grows up, becomes larger than all the garden plants, puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. So Jesus says in verse 25, For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Here's how it is in the spiritual realm. It's just like it is in the physical realm in this sense. You play an instrument and you put it down for six months, you're not going to be as good when you pick it back up. You play sports, you take six months off, guess what? You're not going to be as good. I promise you, you won't be as good. In the spiritual realm, standing still is impossible. You're either advancing spiritually or you're declining. You're either getting better or you're getting worse. You're either moving forward or you're sliding back. Jesus is saying the more we ponder kingdom truths, the more we delve into the mysteries of the gospel, the more knowledge and blessing and assurance and holiness and joy we will have. The less we do it, even what we have will be lost, will be taken away. Don't squander the privilege given to you. Don't squander the privilege given to you. Because all the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments, how inscrutable His ways. It's sort of like that river that Ezekiel pictures for us, the picture of water flowing from the temple meant to symbolize life coming from the source, the spring of God being a blessing to His people. That's found in the study of the Word of God. Studying the principles of the kingdom of God, the mysteries of the gospel. That should bring the most joy to your heart than anything else in the world. There are sometimes even in my study where I need to do something and I literally can't get up from my seat. Because I am so magnetized to the word of God, its depth, its riches, its glory. I'm compelled to sit there, sometimes to miss meals. Because I'm consumed with the Word of God. Church Father Jerome said, The Scriptures are shallow enough for a babe to come and drink without fear of drowning, and deep enough for theologians to swim in without ever touching the bottom. How true that is. When you come to church, you better want to hear the Gospel. The depth of the Gospel. That's the mystery of the Kingdom. That's what expands the Kingdom. And so to continue the little analogy, at some point you need to graduate from the kiddie pool. It's okay to be in the kiddie pool if you have other kids in the kiddie pool, but if you're a grown man with hair on your chest and you are swimming around and splashing around in a kiddie pool by yourself, you're a weirdo, right? Maybe go to the Olympic-sized pool. Christians are to grow and become effective swimmers in God's pool of gospel doctrine because it provides perseverance, strength, and refreshment. What we do here at the church is not meant to be a history lesson. What we do here at the church is not meant to be a doctrinal lecture. But I will say this, what we do at the church and everything we do here at the church is to avoid any sort of superficial, devotional, emotionalism that makes you come in here and leave feeling good and have no clue what the Word of God says. If that's what a church wants me to do, I'm out. I'm out. Christians are to grow And sadly, I have known many professing Christians that they receive the gospel, but even what they have, to borrow the language of verse 25, even that will be taken away. They think they've arrived to theological perfection and knowledge. They need no teacher. They know it all. And isn't it true that these are the ones that need the most teaching, the most prideful? Sadly, verse 25 has been fulfilled in them. For the one who has, more will be given but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. To say this, we should never grow too old to ponder the depth of the gospel so that we can live in light of it. And that's the point. 
Notice verse 26. He said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe at once, he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. What is the next parable about? It's about being preoccupied with the work of the kingdom. And what is the fuel to participate in the ministry of the kingdom? Here it is. The more you are consumed with the glory and the grandeur of God, the more obsessed you are with the depths of the gospel, the more consumed you are with the doctrine and the theology of the majesty and the glory of God will be the fuel that will launch you into the world. You won't be able to keep your mouth shut. You will shine forth this light. You will be a minister of light to a lost, dark, dying world. So let me say again, it's the parable of the sower, not the soil, but the soil plays a part once the seed of the word is implanted. It runs its course, it bears fruit, and the fruit is unbelievable, incalculable, because the lamp of God's truth is not meant to be hidden. Everyone will know who is king. Someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We believe that, we shine that light, and we don't give up. Because guess what? We're a blip on the screen. We're a blip on the screen. But the manifestation in its fullness of the kingdom of God is going to be beyond anything you could possibly imagine. In this world, the day is coming. Let us pray. Lord, we thank You for the Scriptures which give to us great clarity regarding Your kingdom and regarding our role within Your kingdom. Understanding the implications of, Lord, how we are to view Your kingdom, how we are to value Your kingdom, how we are to be used by Your Holy Spirit and Your grace to be instruments of light in this dark world. Father, we pray that if there is darkness in our midst, if there are those who don't know Christ, Lord, that they will have heard the light of the gospel this morning, that it would compel them to be drawn to Christ, that they might repent of their sins, confess Jesus as Lord, become members of His kingdom by Your grace, so that they can be another little light added to all the other lights, so that the glow of Christ can be bright in the world. We thank You for Your Word. It's so clear so helpful, so powerful. It convicts us, but it also motivates us. We thank you for that. Lord, we pray you would bless us now as we sing this hymn of response. We pray these things in Jesus' name.